0: Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology and neurosurgery. Welcome to another episode of Neuropathways. I'm your host, Alex Ray Grant, neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. In an effort to explore the latest advances in neurological practice, Today, we're going to talk about managing patients in the opioid crisis era. I'm very pleased to have Dr. David Stream here with us. Dr. Stream is a staff physician in Cleveland Clinic's Department of Psychiatry and Psychology and Medical Director of Cleveland Clinic's Alcohol and Drug Recovery Center. David, welcome to Neuropathways. Thanks for having me. I'd love for our listeners to get to know you a bit better. Tell us a little about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you train And when did you begin your career at the Cleveland Clinic? Well, um, I grew up in
1: Cleveland, so I'm a native Clevelander. Uh, I went to uh, college in Boston, uh, where I studied uh, biomedical engineering at Boston University. Then I came back to Ohio uh, for medical school at Ohio State. And while there, uh, I had the opportunity to work in the psychiatry department at Cleveland Clinic, And I just fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the approach, the culture, and the leadership. And I just decided that uh, this was a place that I could definitely establish my career
0: and grow. And just to ask you, how long have you been with the clinic? In total, I've been with the clinic 20 years. First, let's start off. How does Cleveland Clinic approach alcohol and drug recovery, David? Well, really... The, one of the things
1: I love about Cleveland Clinic is they approach alcohol and drug recovery the same way we approach uh, other disease states, and it's a very much a medical model, starting with physician
0: leadership, evidence-based practice, and continuous quality improvement. If you could just tell us a bit more about the value of an evidence-based practice in this area, I mean, how does that help? First of all, most patients
1: uh, with opiate use disorder They need to go through treatment uh, about five times on average of course there's fewer and there's more if you only look at an outcome as narrow as long-term sobriety or one year of sobriety after uh, each of those five treatments on average you'd come to the conclusion that the first four treatments were failures and the fifth was a success even if exactly the same thing happened in each treatment. But the reality is, when you talk to these patients, each treatment has its own journey and life, and each uh, patient learns different things in each treatment. So when you hear from them, they'll say, it wasn't that four treatments were failures and the fifth was a success. Each treatment provided me necessary information and skills that I needed to get to the destination achieve the goal that I wanted to achieve. So for them, it's all part of one longer journey. And as an organization struggling with how do we take those indicators and turn them into something measurable, it's a great
0: challenge that um, we're all doing our best to rise to. But as you say, it's really a journey over time with individual steps. Is that?
1: Yes. And then the the wonderful thing is that there's a lot of and a very growing amount of evidence base in the country, in the world. So there are a number of tools that we are trying to incorporate into our system to deliver what we believe and what all of the evidence published tell us yields
0: the best outcomes for patients. Let's take a closer look at opiate abuse. Specifically, as it relates to surgical patients, how does Cleveland Clinic develop procedures that uh, mitigate opiate abuse in our large surgical practices?
1: Well, I, I think this starts with future preparation, so preparing and thinking about this certainly well before a particular patient comes for their surgery, and then also designing methods to educate patients so that they understand why we're gonna be doing things a little bit different in this surgery than maybe they've had the experience in the past. One of the things I've really enjoyed about my work is the physician team approach and the fact that as part of a medical staff, part of my job is to help our surgeons and anesthesiologists and wonderful pain management specialists to develop and direct uh, new approaches especially for particular types of surgeries, whether they be uh, obstetric-type surgeries, orthopedic surgeries, neurosurgeries, to use, again, evidence-based practice to identify how can we use non-opiate and expose people to less opiates over the course of their perioperative course. And then what we found is that the vast, vast, vast majority of patients When they hear about these things that we're doing and these things that we're going to do during their surgery, and they also hear about the efforts we're going to make to get feedback from them as to how successful these are, the patients are extremely appreciative and open to a different approach, which has been very heartening. And I think it bodes very well for our future and the future of the addiction crisis.
0: You want to give us some of the specific kinds of recommendations that we give to the surgeons at the clinic, and how has that changed from where we used to be? I mean, what's the difference?
1: Well, probably the biggest thing that that we've changed for our opiate use disorder patients, so people that have already been diagnosed with opiate use disorder and that are prescribed medication, usually buprenorphine, for the office-based treatment of opiate dependence. So buprenorphine is an opiate, and as such, it uh, should be considered as we're developing a perioperative management plan. So when buprenorphine first became available for this purpose, the original recommendations uh, that came down from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, as well as others, were to taper people off of the buprenorphine, and then during the surgery and the post-op period, you'll use full opiate agonists, and then when the need for perioperative opiate analgesia was over, to restart them on the buprenorphine. What we found since then, uh, really, is that is not the best approach. We're continuing buprenorphine in most circumstances throughout the perioperative period, A number of new guidelines have come out that have shown that um, when we do this, actually the outcomes are excellent. It also reduces the risk of relapse uh, before an operative procedure can actually occur. So the patients are safer, they're more comfortable, they actually get better analgesia, and they have a better patient experience. And for us, that's what it's all about, It's taken some time to help the organization understand that change in approach. But now that we have that understanding and that collaboration, uh, as long as we're able to start before the surgery occurs, we really can expect a really nice outcome for most surgeries. There are uh, differences in how we manage that depending on how much opiate analgesia is normally needed. Uh, smaller or less orthopedic type surgeries, obviously there are sometimes some mitigating changes that we can make. Sometimes just increasing the buprenorphine dose allows us to get away without using any opiates at all. Uh, And of course, working with both the surgeons and the anesthesiologists to use pre-medication to minimize the need for opiates generally, but particularly in the population that has a history of opiate use disorder, that is very much appreciated uh, by folks in addiction treatment uh, services like myself, and also these patients who are usually pretty desperate by the time they need surgery because opiate exposure in the past got them to a very dark place. And they realize that that's usually, especially for joint replacement surgeries or neurosurgeries, uh, that's very often going to be at least part of the perioperative management. So they come into it with a lot of apprehension and fear. And usually when we're able to implement our approach,
0: then the outcome can be really tremendous and the patients are very happy. That sounds great. So that it sounds like an awful lot of systems change to get where we are now. I mean, who did that, and how did that all come about? And all with all these different surgeons in these different locations—that a lot of communication and work. Yeah, it's there's
1: a lot of uh, uh, opportunities. I really take every single surgery that I'm involved with very uh, seriously, and we look at it with the individual uh, surgical specialists, the surgeons, and the anesthesiologists. And I really try to spend some individual time with each of them, uh, especially if we haven't worked together before, making sure that they understand what the approach is and why we're taking that approach. And the time that I have the freedom to take as, as part of a
0: staff model organization is, is tremendously liberating. Well, I know, David, we talked a lot about surgical management of opiates, But maybe let's switch to the medical side. What about those people with chronic headaches and and opiates? What's the situation there? Well, the chronic headache
1: population can be a particularly challenging uh, population, and their uh, opiate uh, use disorder risk is very significant. And that's why I'm very happy that the Cleveland Clinic developed a, a migraine, adult migraine, care path that is available to all Cleveland Clinic providers. So I am someone who treats patients who very often do suffer from uh, chronic migraine or episodic migraine, and I am not a headache specialist per se. So um, it's been really great to be able to open up this very professionally done evidence-based document and use that as a at least a starting point to address, again, non-opiate approaches to manage migraine and to be ensured that I'm always recommending the best evidence-based practice, even though this isn't my area of specialization. And I've just been really happy with a lot of the results of that, patients who have uh, struggled with migraine, often for many years, often, again, because they're my patients, they often have a history of opiate use disorder or other uh, addiction problems. And so they're very mindful of avoiding opiates. And when we can use these non-opiate uh, approaches and really have a major impact on quality of life, that's uh, that's something that's just very um, pleasing to me, pleasing to the patients, of course, uh, they end up functioning better, they have less time off of work, and they're more able to meet their role obligations because they're not so affected by their migraines. Uh, so uh, very often in my work, I'm asked opinions, like I am now, about um, my focus on addiction in general and opiate addiction in particular, but I also get to benefit from all the other experts uh, within the Cleveland Clinic, and
0: and the care path has definitely been one way that I've benefited from that. So I'm going to step even further back from the specifics at this point. A lot of clinicians deal with opiates with their patients, And, and what are some of the things that they should consider when looking at a uniform but best practice approach to opioid management. I mean, one of the important things for them to be aware of and implement in their practice.
1: Well, I think first of all, you've got to look at the state regulatory environment. There's been a lot of changes in state regulations in many states, but in particular in Ohio. Uh, I think that also you have to look at how am I uh, approaching objective evaluation of each patient, and then how am I ensuring that my patients are achieving the goals and that I can demonstrate that they've achieved those goals over the course of time and that those goals are maintained. A lot of times we do see folks who seem to do really well initially in the early stages of their treatment, and if in my practice, you know, every one to three months, Even folks who are very stable will come back for follow-up visits, and part of that time we spend doing urine drug screenings. As long as those drug screens are are negative or or the results are reviewed by me, and if I need help, I call up one of my uh, pathologist colleagues over in the lab institute, and we monitor that over the long haul partly because there are state regulations that mandate it, but partly because it's the right thing to do. And that allows us to identify patients who are doing well and being successful and patients who are still struggling. I think that oftentimes when patients are struggling with chronic opiate management, it very often means that the opiate as a class of drugs is probably not the right approach, which would lead us to revisit our diagnosis. What's the reason why we're using this class of drugs as opposed to a different class of drugs? And generally, uh, dose adjustment or adjusting to more direct uh, routes of administration generally lead to more side effects and more frustration and, frankly, more risk. So a lot of times what we're focusing on is revisiting, going back to good old fashioned diagnosis, medical diagnosis, 101 physical exam, and really helping us to understand what exactly is the disorder here that we're treating. Let's make sure that we have the right target in our crosshairs
0: before we take the actions that we wanna take. So just as a self-serving question here as as a provider, How can I ensure that I'm keeping up with the latest state regulations and not getting myself in some kind of problem with my practice or licensure? What's the best way to go about that?
1: Well, first of all, consulting an attorney who has a special focus in medical practice management is really important. In psychiatry, of course, there's a very um, significant connection and interaction between psychiatric care and the law. In fact, that's a whole specialty for us. And I often say that good psychiatrists need good lawyers. We, we need that to operate. Regulations today are written very quickly, and there is a lot of oversight and review that occurs, but the process of moving regulations through those different levels of review has gotten very fast. And I think it's very difficult for a provider with a large practice and significant concerns to keep up with a lot of the regulatory changes. I think that the regulatory changes that have occurred, though, are there for a reason. And it's because we have morgues that are filling up with people who have passed far too young and uh, oftentimes with... Uh, prescription pill bottles with doctor's names on them and and the patient's name on the bottle as well. So how do we take our practices and and the abilities to prescribe that were granted and turn that into a force for good for our patients and always make sure that we're staying within the sidelines that are created for us, even when those sidelines move. And boy, lately they've been moving a lot is a very significant challenge. I think that if you have concern that you're not up to date and up to speed on where those sidelines are, it's important to really seek consultation with other experts in the field, other practitioners, or really look at the patients that are in your practice to decide if you can really serve them in a way that's safe both for them and for you and your licensure and, and the rules that are out there. because especially in Ohio, they're there um, because we've had this major, very scary epidemic that looks like it's at least on pause. There's been a slight improvement in Cuyahoga County. The number of overdose deaths nationally continues to go up. And right now, we don't know whether the the slight reduction in, in Cuyahoga County in overdose deaths heralds a larger reduction nationally or whether this is just a pause and an evolution in a worsening epidemic. I, uh, of course, I have my hopes that things are going to get better, but we have to be prepared for the undesirable outcome of that data. And all of that comes back to watching that data and being mindful of it as, as quickly and as reasonably as we can.
0: Well David, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and insights and all the work you do with not the easiest population in the world, so thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here, thanks. This concludes this episode of our Neuro Pathways podcast. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org/neuropodcast. Subscribe to the Neuro Pathways podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website, consultqd.clevelandclinic.org neuro, or follow us on Twitter at Clee Clinic MD, all one word, that's at CLE Clinic M D on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.